And we are back with Chuck Gunderson, the author of Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 to 66. It's a two-volume uh, set and uh, just chock-a-block full of uh, rare, never-before-seen photographs uh, from each city on this whirlwind tour. Uh, well, all these whirlwind tours. Uh, we're, we're focusing on the uh, the first official North American tour tonight from uh, 19. 64. Uh, Chuck, how did the Beatles deal with racial segregation in the South during the tour? Although the Civil Rights Act had been signed into law by the time the Beatles arrived, there were some holdout states, particularly Florida, I understand. How did they handle that? Well, that was interesting because they started planning for the concerts in the spring of 1964, so March, April. The Civil Rights Act was passed in July of 1964, so it was, you know, obviously being tossed around in Congress at the time. And all the promoters agreed to a very special clause that was inserted into the Beatles' writer, which was that the artist would not be required to perform before a segregated audience, which was quite revolutionary in 1964. Um, there had been several artists before that were, that were fighting for racial inclu- inclusion. Among them, among them, Frank Sinatra, who uh, wanted uh, venues desegregated, wanted uh, African American artists to be able to stay at the hotels that the white artists were staying at. But for a group from England to come over and demand that is is quite special. They really never had to worry about that wherever else they played in the UK. And as a matter of fact, America was the only place they needed the writer, uh, the clause and the writer inserted. So all the promoters knew about it before the Civil Rights Act had passed. However, there were some Southern venues where Jim Crow laws, even after the Civil Rights Act was passed, were slowly erasing those Jim Crow laws. They were fighting against it. And Brian Epstein had actually had checked off two places that he had wanted the Beatles to perform. One was in Montgomery, Alabama, and the other one was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And because these laws were beginning to slowly erase, there was just no way to probably have an integrated concert in Montgomery, Alabama, especially with a governor at the time uh, named George Wallace. Uh, who famously said, uh, segregation today, segregation forever. Uh, So they scrapped those concerts. They did perform a show in Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl, also in New Orleans and in Dallas, kind of southeast there. Um, But as early as when the tour started, the second stop in Las Vegas, Nevada, the press asked, especially Paul McCartney, hey, you know, we understand that the venue in Jacksonville may be segregated. Will you still perform the concert? And he just said, there's just no way. We're absolutely not going to perform there unless the venue is integrated. Now, the the promoters knew that even before all the press hoopla came aboard, that that show needed to be integrated. Uh, But there was quite a bit of press on that in terms of them uh, facing venues that might have been segregated. But uh, John Lennon famously said to the press, he said, if any of our venues are segregated, I would rather lose our appearance money. Uh, So they were all for that. But I think the person that probably doesn't get enough credit 
is Brian Epstein because he was the one that really negotiated the contracts with General Artists Corporation in New York. He had the writer inserted. And it was really during a special time in history, uh, just when those Beatle concerts were being organized, uh, there were other organizers in New York, black artists. Uh, there were articles that appeared in the New York Times during that time when black artists were, were wanting um, venues to be desegregated. So it was just kind of this, this special time when everything was happening. The Beatles were a great supporter and, and forerunner of that. Were there any black artists that were their opening acts? Yes. Uh, the Exciters were a black group from Jamaica, Queens, the girl group. Uh, they did add uh, Herb Rooney in that uh, concert tour who was, was married to the lead singer. Um, and also Clarence Frog Van Henry. So when they went down to play Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl, they were scheduled to stay at the George Washington Hotel down there. And they had the press conference there before the show. But the George Washington Hotel would not allow black artists to stay there. So the Beatles management and General Artists Corporation actually canceled their reservations at the George Washington Hotel. So after that Gator Bowl concert, the Beatles got on the plane in Jacksonville and flew to Boston, which was their next uh, place they were going to perform at. And uh, they also uh, diverted a hurricane as well down there. During the time Hurricane Dora had passed uh, before, right before they had performed there. So they were performing in about 40 degree uh, afterwinds of Hurricane Dora, which was pretty interesting. I don't know if you covered this in the book uh, or the two volume set, Ringo's Death Threat. Yeah, so that was in Montreal. Um, there was a faction group in Quebec. And uh, that uh, was against the Queen and uh, wanted to be separatists and all that. And they mistakenly thought that Ringo Starr was Jewish. And so they were kind of issuing death threats to the English Jew, Ringo Starr. Um, <laughs> there was a little bit of flap on that. The Beatles were a bit nervous coming into Montreal. And um, they did have a plainclothes detective person close by. They were protected a lot more closely in Montreal than other cities. And, um, yeah, it was, a it was a serious threat that they had to deal with. Uh, what about blackmail? Um, they were subjected to some, some blackmail plots as well. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, so the blackmail pot plots were as early as the second stop in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, some girls had gotten up into their rooms uh, that were kind of organized by one of their mothers. And, of course, the mother went to the hotel desk and said, look, my daughters are up there in the Beatles' rooms, and I don't know what's going on. And um, it was obviously a blackmail plot in trying to exert some money from them. Um, but they, they did have that many times. There were bomb threats along the way. They had to clear the, you know, the venue out before they could come in. Um, also, the FBI created a file for, for them. As soon as they got at the airport in San Francisco, uh, members of the FBI were there. They created a case file uh, that you can see online. And they were they were worried that the Beatles, that subversive groups would kind of hook on to the Beatles as kind of a front so they could carry out their subversive activities. And so the FBI was along for the for the tour as well. It was also during a presidential election. You know, uh, LBJ was running against Barry Goldwater 
And, uh, you know, one of the presidential candidates would stump at a speech uh, right before the Beatles got there. You know, the next day, either one would would be there and they'd leave up the chairs from the night before. And one of the promoters told me that they actually had to have more security for the Beatles than any of the presidential candidates that came through town. But, yeah, bomb threats, blackmail threats, you know, uh, fans trying to hurt them, um, scare them, that type of thing. And. And you could just see where, you know, touring was starting to become just not a good thing for the Beatles. Not only could they progress in their music, but they were just confined like like animals in these these hotel rooms and venues that they were playing at. You know, in the heady days when they were playing Hamburg and and, um, elsewhere before they were, you know, a household name, they were – you know, sharing hotel rooms, maybe even sharing beds, sharing sandwiches, sleeping on the floor. W- with this tour, with, were they still, did they still have that that bond where they would share a room or were they, you know, traveling separately, uh, in, it had their own suites? <laughs> Interestingly enough, it was, they were still sharing, like there would be like two Beatles to a room. You know, they did stay in some historic hotels around the nation, they wanted to stay at the Ambassador Hotel where um, Senator Kennedy was assassinated in. But the ambassador said, no, we're not going to have them here. They're going to, you know, kids are going to rip up the lobby. And so they had to rent a house in Bel Air. And they did that in each L.A. stop. They figured, forget the hotel. We're just going to rent a, a movie star's house up in the Hollywood Hills or something. Um, but they would uh, they would stay in some nice places. But they also stayed in some pretty suspect places, I would say. You know, in Indianapolis, they stayed at the Indianapolis, you know, Motor Speedway Inn, which was basically a glorified motel. When they went down to New Orleans, they stayed at the Congress Inn, which was basically a motel kind of travel court for those in old-time Americans that remember that. You'd pull your car into the parking lot, and the motel would be kind of an L-shape, you know, single story, just drive right up to your room. Um, so how they ever protected those, I'll never know, but they, they probably had to have police there from the minute, minute they arrived to the minute they left. So they kind of got a taste of all America. They stayed in some historic hotels like the Brown Palace in Denver and the, the Delmonico in New York, the Warwick in New York, uh, the Madison in Boston. So, you know, that was, that was kind of fun for them to see, although they weren't able to get out and explore any of the cities or their culture of, of that, or the culture of that city. Uh, they seem to like Toronto. And of course, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm living just north of Toronto. So uh, I have to, you know, note this. Is that the only city that they played uh, on every tour, uh, 64 through 66? Yeah. So Toronto has the, um, the, the, uh, they are the city that has had the Beatles on the stage the most in North America. So they perform there six times, um, twice each time they came in 64, 65, and 66. They would do two shows a day at the old Maple Leaf Gardens. And, you know, Maple Leaf Gardens was old at the time, even when they were there in 1964. So you can imagine how bad the sound must have been. Uh, in there, and of course, it was you know run by Harold Ballard, who was you know very famous in terms of you know being very cheap and uh, demanding, and you know raising the prices of of uh, you know food items and things like that when the Beatles were there. 
but yeah, Toronto is the city where the where is the most graced city in North America where the Beatles played the most. And why is that? Did they have a particular? I mean, is that something that they asked for? That they have a particular fondness for Toronto? Uh, what was I don't it about think the city? So I think it was just the, the the likely city to go in Canada when you're when you're touring the eastern seaboard of the United States. You know, you're going to go up to Toronto because it's pretty close to Detroit. So um, and they played Detroit in 1964 and 1966. So you're you're just going to go over and hop over to Toronto. Um, but they did play Montreal in 1964, and they did play Vancouver in 1964 as well at the old uh, Empire Stadium. Did they did they stay at the King Edward Hotel each time in Toronto? They did. Yeah, the King Edward um, had them there all three times, and um, you know the King Edward is famous for their Beatle lore there, and especially with John Lennon as well. Do you happen to remember the suite they stayed on? Stayed at. I do not. I might have had it in the book, but I do have some room numbers. And then the very back of the book, at least when the book was published, uh, I had given an updated version of every hotel they stayed at and every venue they performed and its current status, if it's still standing, if it was demolished. Uh, and then usually in the chapters, I, if I can find them, I will have the room numbers uh, like I did in Denver, I, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, I was able to stay in the exact room number that the Beatles stayed in. Now, the room is configured a little bit differently, but it was the exact space they were in. Um, you could go to the Edgewater Hotel today in San Francisco, I mean, in Seattle, and uh, stay in their room and take your fishing pole and fish out the window like the Beatles did for the photo shoot in the, uh, that I presented in the book. Yeah, there's a great picture of that. Uh, share another fam- uh, favorite photo of yours in the book. Oh gosh, there's just there's just so many. I think one of them that I really like is of them coming on stage in Cincinnati, and they're coming out of like the dugout at Crosley Field, and it's a shot of them where you just see their backs and their long hair and their suits. And all these fans like coming right on top of them. And then, and then inside the fans and the Beatles are all these police officers with billy clubs, um, kind of, you know, clearing a path for the Beatles to come out to that stage at Crosley Field. It's, it's a great photo. They played there uh, on August 20th, 1966. There was a, a rain delay actually that night. They couldn't get them on stage. The Beatles had to stay overnight in Cincinnati and come back the next day at noon to perform that gig. Can you imagine uh, the Beatles getting up that early to to go over and perform a gig at noon in Cincinnati in the summertime? It must have been pretty wow. crazy. Then that night, they got on an airplane and performed another show in St. Louis that same night. Was the response from the media universally positive, or did they have their detractors who thought they were subversives and they were just going to bring nothing but, you know, bedlam to the city? I would say it was mostly people, you know, the press is just, you know, they looked at this as more of a flash in the pan. Like, okay, you're going to get your fame here and it's going to be over, and this is just a fun little story during the summertime. And a lot of the questions that the Beatles were asked, you know, they sat through 25 formal press conferences in 1964. Most of the questions were about their hair, about their 
you know, their look about, you know, not, not a lot of it was serious. There were some questions, though, on their stance on the Vietnam War, on who they supported in the 1964 presidential election, things like that. But most of them were pretty Bane questions, you know. There was a question asked to George Harrison, how do you sleep with such long hair? And George <laughs> Riley responded, how do you sleep with your arms and legs still attached? You know, it was, it was things like that that just didn't take them seriously. Um, reviews of their music that was, was not pleasing. But then there was a lot of positiveness towards them about how they were as these Liverpool kids that came over and were kind of mature in taking on this very tough and hardened U.S. you know press and Canadian press, and they handled it. They handled it very well. Uh, is is that the tour where John Lennon was asked how he found America? To which he wryly responded, "I turned left at Greenland." Yeah, that's in the Hard Day's Night movie that was shown to American teenagers in the uh, summer of 64, right before they got here uh, on that August tour. But there's a scene in that movie where they're in this kind of press conference and a reporter asks that question. <laughs> it's one of the great lines, the comeback lines of all time. All right, back with uh, more of my conversation with Chuck Gunderson. Having some fun tonight and also your calls, your questions, comments as we relive Beatlemania right here on Coast to Coast AM. Stay with us. Chuck Gunderson, Beatles historian, author of Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 to 1966. It's a, it's an impressive and hefty two-volume set and, again, belongs on the bookshelf of uh, every serious Beatles fan. Uh, and even the not so serious Beatle fan, because it's just a it's just a beautiful, beautiful collection. Um, what kind of cele or which celebrities showed up uh, to to see the Beatles, to to speak with the Beatles at either the concert uh, venues or the hotels? Well, there were a few in different cities. Um, you know, Shirley Temple Black was at the first show at the uh, Cow Palace uh, there in San Francisco. Liberace was at the Las Vegas show along with Pat Boone. Um, so there were celebrities, but there really wasn't a lot of them hanging around backstage, uh, interestingly enough. They kind of kept everyone out. And uh, the Beatles really kind of weren't that enamored with it all. They had to do a charity function when they were in L.A. during the time they were uh, there to do the Hollywood Bowl show in August of 64. And they had to do kind of a meet and greet at uh, Alan Livingston. He was the president of Capitol Records at his mother-in-law's house in Brentwood, California. So they had to kind of sit in the backyard. And all these kind of Hollywood celebrities stood in line with their kids to kind of go through the line. And the Beatles were sitting on these bar stools you know, eating ice cream uh, cones and meeting these um, celebrity kids and celebrities themselves. And there's actually a section in the book of just devoted to the garden party, which shows some amazing photos of them that I unearthed of, of them sitting under the trees in this luscious backyard in Brentwood as the Hollywood elite came through to meet the Beatles. Uh, where did they meet Bob Dylan first? 
So they met Bob Dylan at the Delmonico Hotel in New York when they were there for the Forest Hills shows, which were on August 28th and 29th. Uh, I have actually a picture in the book of Dylan arriving that night uh, with his uh, with his manager and uh, Beatles uh, roadie Neil Aspinall was was also there to uh, kind of meet that meet him and kind of let him up to the suite at the Delmonico and of course that's the famous story where they uh, kind of put towels under the door and all smoked marijuana and, and enjoyed that experience together. All right, let's go to the phones, and uh, we welcome Roy on the wildcard line from North Carolina. Roy, welcome to Coast. Hi, Chuck and Richard. I'd like to know, Chuck, if you think, you know, the the JFK assassination was right before I Want to Hold Your Hand came out before Christmas here. Do you think that, um, you know, the American youth was looking for something to be happy about? that it added to the intensity, you know, the British invasion, did it, did American youth looking for something that wasn't American, like, almost like hated American stuff, because look what happened to their leader, their youthful leader, and so the Beatles' intensity was was extra because of the JFK assassination, I guess is what I'm asking. Oh, thanks for the question. It seems like the Beatles and JFK will always be linked. However, Beatle historians have kind of moved past the JFK assassination and spawning the Beatles, and they came at the right time and everything. Um, most historians agree now that American teenagers were pretty much over the assassination by December. You know, they were looking to other things. Obviously, adults were still shocked by it and things like that. But um, I think they were looking to the next, you know, next thing that they could latch on to as American teenagers do. They're always looking for that, aren't they? And uh, so I want to hold your hand uh, came out right at the right time. Um, it's kind of interesting because music was kind of just not really going anywhere at that time. Obviously, there was the Beach Boys in the West, Dylan in the East, you know, Motown in Detroit. Uh, but it was somewhat fractured, a lot of teen idol-driven kind of stuff. I mean, the number one song in America in December of 1963, right before the Beatles came, was Dominique by The Singing Nun. Um, just not a lot of excitement in the air. So the Beatles did come along at the right time uh, in February, having that number one hit with I Want to Hold Your Hand, and it kind of just took off from there. Thank you for the call, uh, Roy. Let's say hi to Jim in Delaware. Jim, welcome to Coast. Hey, Richard. Yeah, um, I was telling Tommy there was a guy on last Friday about the Rolling Stones. Now you got the Beatles this Friday. Perfect. <laughs> anyway, great, great. Uh, um, uh, I got the I got the Beatles Christmas greetings on a CD. I got uh, I got uh, the Butcher album of yesterday and today, and I just looked it up on on Amazon. It's around eighty dollars. But a friend of mine said, "Well, wait till the other two Beatles pass, and then uh, sell the uh, Butcher album for a lot of money, possibly." But anyway, here's the thing: I used to go to a concert in Philadelphia in the 70s 
for like uh, $6. No, yeah, and it was only about $2 more than the LP. Now, if you get a CD for $15, it ain't going to be $20 to see the concert. You got to pay more like 200 And I think it's because nobody's buying CDs. Young people download single songs from like iTunes. And um, so I was, and the tra- cost of traveling, I was telling Tommy that it's, prob- it's probably, uh, um, uh, a band has to tour in order to make money because they're not making money off their recordings. What else is it? That's true. Everything has sort of come full circle. I think it started out that way. And then there was a period when album sales went through the roof. Everyone was buying albums. And now we're back to uh, because the business model has changed. Now it's all about it's all about touring and playing the hits. Um, Chuck, did you want to talk about um, I guess the, the, the idea that it's come full circle and, and it's all about the touring now. Yeah, it is because, you know, the Beatles really kind of, like I said in the beginning, the Beatles, that tour in the 64 kind of invented the rock and roll touring industry, which is now a multi-billion dollar, uh, you know, uh, business. And uh, there are several publicly traded companies that are involved in it. Live Nation, for a matter, as a matter of fact, and, and uh, one of the CEOs of Live Nation, his name was Ron Delsner, was actually a kid promoter in 1964, and he had the Beatles come to the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. He did those two shows and uh, saw that at the very early stages and later, you know, was the CEO of this publicly traded Live Nation company. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Taylor Swift goes out now. I mean, it's a, it's a huge extravaganza. There's, you know, 100 trucks carrying her equipment. She's making tons of money. I mean, McCartney's back out on the road again, you know, in Australia right now. He's, you know, making a lot of money at these appearance fees and getting percentages of the gate and things. So, yes, bands are making a lot of money by touring, and it's, it is coming full circle because music is so fractured right now. When the Beatles uh, performed uh, a candlestick in uh, August of 66, which I guess ended up being the last uh, concert, except, you know, if you include, if you don't include um, a, a top Abbey Road in, in 69, but did they know after uh, that can, that candlestick performance in 66, did they say to themselves, that's it, we're done? Or did, did it just sort of happen naturally that they didn't go back out on the road again? I think Brian Epstein kind of had to kick him out the door to even do the 1965 tour. I think they were beginning to see the pitfalls of touring and especially that they weren't doing what they were best at, which was creating music in a studio and developing new sound that you couldn't, couldn't recreate on a concert stage. So touring became very confining to them. And by 1966, I think even halfway through the tour, maybe even before that, they were saying, you know, this is it. You know, we're not going to ever come back out again and do this. And it's kind of interesting because of this journey that they took. I mean, they last performed in the Cavern in Liverpool, and it was only three years and like 26 days or something after they did that last performance at the Cavern in Liverpool to the final bow at Candlestick Park. I mean, just this meteorotic journey that took place from an underground cellar in Matthew Street to some of the most prestigious stages in the world, Um, you know, just over three years to do that. 
So I think they'd kind of seen the mountaintop. They had gotten where they needed to be. They did all that they could do. And they wanted to go back in the studio and create music. And luckily, because they did that, we got Sgt. Pepper. We got the White Album. We got Abbey Road. You know, all these just beautiful, beautiful works of music. Can you... Can you tell uh, by the by the photographs and and the look on their faces that by sixty six or even sixty five? I mean, is there a, is there a sort of a, a sea change in their appearance and the way they they look? Maybe not smiling as much in the photographs that they were getting progressively more fatigued and tired of the whole business. I think once they're on stage, they loved being on stage. I mean, they were a live touring band for many years, and I think they loved to perform together. But seeing pictures of them in a hotel, at a press conference, airport, whatever, it just it 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 just wasn't there. You know, the spark. It was like kind of the been there, done that moment in their in their look, and they were kind of getting kind of bitter toward the press. You know, before they would you know answer questions, they'd be pretty funny and cheeky about answering questions by the time 1966 rolled around they were a bit bitter with the press they were kind of biting back a little bit they were not wanting to answer silly questions about who they were how long how long their hair was or if they had pimples on their face or what they ate for breakfast you know they wanted to answer serious questions about what was going on in society and especially what what they were doing in their music and how they were progressing in it. All right, let's grab uh, another call here. East of the Rockies, Lance is in New Jersey. Lance, welcome to Coast. Hey, a gracious good evening, Richard and Chuck. Uh, Richard, do Thank me you. a favor. Uh, could you please share next week or the next time you're on that you actually had a good cup of coffee, some baklava, and a shot of uzo okay <laughs> oh i've done all of that i have done all of that my friend chuck, <laughs> i'm happy to report chuck i wanted to let you know i actually went to the august 30th atlantic city concert in atlantic in the boardwalk convention hall because steel pier was too small to house the beatles and i know that they they said that they stayed at the lafayette hotel and they escaped in a fish truck but the guy that ran security by the name of Al Black was the one guy that knew all, knew the timetable and that knew how to juggle everything because he was like the head of security, one of the biggest hotels. And that was the same year that the 64, the Democratic National Convention was in New Jersey. I was only 12 years old, but I still remember there's a restaurant, or it's a sub shop where the Beatles, all four of them, were around a huge uh, submarine sandwich up in their room, and they're holding it, all four of them. And I wanted to know if you ever had the chance to see that picture. Because yeah, that, pic that picture is in my book, as a matter of fact. They uh, got a sub delivered to them from the famous White House sub in New Jersey there. And, uh, yes, Steel Pier uh, did do that show. And um, actually, there was a song that was written in that hotel at the Lafayette Motel called What You're Doing. And an uh, associate of mine, uh, they has that sheet of lyric. Um, it's on the Lafayette Hotel stationery. And when the Beatles left, Paul was writing the song. And he just threw it in the trash. 
hotel maid recovered it. He gave it, uh, she gave it to the owner of the hotel. The owner of the hotel kept it for a while and then sold it to my friend uh, over 20 years ago. So he has a piece of original lyric written by, by Paul McCartney. Wow. Is that fish truck story true? They were, they were smuggled into the venue in a fish truck as a diversion? Yeah, there were several diversionary tactics that were used throughout the touring years, ambulances, uh, cargo trucks. Uh, there's actually a sequence of pictures in my book after they did the final show on the 65 tour at the Cow Palace when they were leaving the Cabana Mo Motor Lodge. Uh, they actually parked a freight truck in the parking lot, and you, there's a sequence of the pictures of the Beatles getting in the back of this freight truck, this dirty kind of steel line, like you can see Ringo didn't even want to sit down in it because his pants are going to get dirty or something. And you can imagine them just trying to sit back there as this thing's rolling around town, getting them to the airport in the back of this big cargo truck. So, yeah, a lot <laughs> it wasn't of all glamorous. It wasn't all glamorous. Yeah. Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, two-volume set. It's uh, just a gorgeous uh, set of books. And uh, how do we get a copy? So the usual places, obviously, the big uh, one is Amazon. But if you really want to get a personalized copy, go to my website, at somefuntonight.com, and I will personally sign the book for you. I will FedEx the book to you free of charge. Uh, just pay the price of the book. It's it's a heavy book. It's 13 pounds. So when it arrives at your door, you know, watch out because it is going to be heavy. Um, but the best place to buy the book is at somefuntonight.com. Lift from the knees, not the back. Chuck Anderson. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. When we come back, open lines right here on Coast to Coast AM.